Thank you for joining us for Common Ground in Perspective, a series of short plays and conversations powered by the Huntington in partnership with Facing History and ourselves. This series is a companion podcast to the Huntington's upcoming production of Common Ground Revisited. Written by Kirsten Greenwich and directed by Melia Ben-Susan, Common Ground Revisited is an adaptation of Anthony Lucas' 1986 book. This podcast series puts short plays in dialogue with local leaders and scholars to contextualize the history surrounding busing, school desegregation, education, and opportunity in the city of Boston. In crafting these conversations, the Huntington has partnered with Brookline organization Facing History and Ourselves. How can looking at painful history of our city inform our collective effort in building a stronger future? How can we engage with history to help us combat discrimination today? Following the audio play, we'll bring you a panel moderated by scholar and Facing History-affiliated teacher Nima Avashia, featuring Bishop John Borders III, Dr. Carolyn Crockett, and Professor Matthew Delmont. First, we hear from Melia and Kirsten. This is director Melia Ben-Susan. Kirsten and I began the stage adaptation of Common Ground almost 10 years ago. In the stage play, we hope to build on, expand, and reframe Tony Lucas's landmark work. With this podcast, our aim is to share some aspects of this project with audiences, and to also invite you to join us with your point of view, because this is our city's collective story, and we want to hear and reflect on the many perspectives that coexist around this history. And this is Kirsten Greenwich. What you will hear in this podcast is not an excerpt of the play that will be on stage next summer. In this series, we wanted to do two things. One, discuss some of the public figures and events that we are choosing not to center in the stage play. Two, we wanted to foreground that this project is designed for conversation. So today, you'll hear a story about then Boston Mayor Kevin White that launches into a conversation about the role of civic institutions in the busing crisis. And now, episode one, the mayor. The truth is, the truth is, if ever a man was bred for politics, it was Mayor Kevin White. His mother Patricia's people were Hagans, emigrants from Ireland to Nova Scotia during the Great Famine. His father, Joe, star quarterback, Boston College, semi-pro for the Providence Steamrollers took to politics with particular gusto. And since the white name... Ah, that Kevin White. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Since the white name wasn't readily identifiable as Irish... It helped attract voters in the Yankee and Jewish districts. Although Joe White found his three sons' first names... Chosen by his wife... Distressing. Jesus, how do you expect a kid named Kevin to get on the ballot? But the truth was, by the time he was barely out of his 20s, Kevin White was not only on the ballot, he'd won it. I won it. The Ward 5 Committee, then Secretary of the State of Massachusetts, then Mayor of Boston. It was not entirely coincidental that when Kevin White left his father's West Roxbury base for Beacon Hill in 1956, he settled into the very apartment block where another Boston Irishman, Jack Kennedy, had established his voting address a decade before. To a young man in White's position, Jack Kennedy's cool diffidence seemed the standard by which to measure himself. When Honey Fitz, his grandson, declined to kiss babies or try on Indian headdresses, Kevin White looked on in instant recognition. Not for him, the boozy bonami of the traditional Boston Paul. Instead, the dignified mean of the public servant. When a black aide asked whether he planned to march in the St. Patrick's Day parade, Kevin White said, I feel about that the way you do about a minstrel show. Huh. But truth is... Truth is... Even the noblest of servants meet their match. Bossing. 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 Truth is... Truth... Kevin was like a child that summer before busing began, like a kid so terrified of the future he won't step on the cracks in the sidewalk. He persuaded himself that if he was very good, if he somehow stepped right in the middle of all the squares, he'd avoid the awful thing that was lying in wait for him. Truth is, it didn't work. 
and Boston reaped its whirlwind. By fall 1974, his police, at the end of their tether, Mayor White resolved to throw the whole mess back at Judge Garrity. Who'd begun this whole thing with his desegregation order in the first place. And asked the judge for 125 marshals to secure order in the city. He liked the symbolism. They'll demonstrate for everyone that this is the work of a federal judge, dependent on its enforcement, on federal power. Your Honor... This city is under great emotional strain. What we have is a city in hysteria. Hysteria breeds violence. The question before us is whether the federal government is willing to step in after the city has given a maximum effort, but before a collapse. Before a holocaust. Holocaust? Small h? Or like what? What is White saying? Mr. Mayor, what are you saying? That word, you don't just go throwing around that word. Judge Garrity's reply? His court didn't have 125 marshals. It had 23. The city will accept 23. It's important to establish a federal presence in the city, and marshals will be symbols of that presence. But for Judge Garrity? This isn't a case that needs symbolism. This is a case that needs security. With all due respect, I believe your understanding is only 80% accurate. And to a mayoral aide sitting nearby, it was like... It was like a Greek drama. Two great institutions, the executive and judiciary, confronting each other head on. A collision was inevitable. As predestined as Oedipus sleeping with his mother and murdering his father. Truth? Truth is... Truth is... Truth is... Oedipus. The Oedipus? Bussing, man. This is it. This is it. This is... This is it, man. Fall of 74. Boston setting up like a war zone. You've got Louise Day Hicks and her Boston school board disobeying orders from the Board of Education. You've got black parents upset their kids ain't learning nothing, ain't been learning nothing. You got white parents yanking their kids from public school at even the mention of the word bus, and you've got the President of the United States giving his eight cents on the whole entire thing, leaving Mr. Mayor here out to dry. The court decision in that case, in my judgment, uh, was not the best solution to quality education in Boston. I have consistently opposed uh, forced busing to achieve racial balance as a solution to quality education. And therefore, I respectfully disagree, disagree with the judge's uh, order. Collision inevitable. And Boston schools are more segregated now than in 1965, when the Racial Imbalance Act calling the city out got passed. So the truth is... The truth is... Boston had to meet a federal mandate using a state formula, but requiring a local solution. And we had Washington's refusal to help. After years and years of the city, this city, our city, refusing to fix its separate and very unequal school system on its own. See, 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 I see Boston as an inspiration to all communities that face difficult, perhaps undesired change. Let's hope that this nation is full of other Bostons. Other Bostons. Oh boy. Full of them, yes! Full of communities with the strength to face challenge, the resilience to survive confrontation, the maturity to accept change. That's not really what I think of when I think of Boston. Well, I do. This is my city. And the picture of Boston as a city torn apart, rife with violence and hatred, has never been true. Hmm. How many marshals he asked for? 125. Yeah, well, I got 23. So the truth is... Somewhere in between.
My name is Nima Avachia. I'm a Boston Public Schools teacher in the neighborhood of Dorchester, where I've taught for the last 18 years. Early in my career, I introduced the Morgan versus Hennigan school desegregation case to my eighth grade civics class, only to have a student tell me that her grandmother was one of the plaintiffs in the case. Another student saw the book All Souls on my bookshelf and told me that her mother was featured in the book. And when we watched Eyes on the Prize in the episode about Boston, we saw a black mother living in Columbia Point right across from our school describe her child's experiences with busing. But on my drive to work every day, I passed the intersection of Mass Ave and Columbia Road, much like school buses did going back and forth between Roxbury and South Boston in the 70s. And instead of a memorial commemorating the city's complex relationship with desegregation, there's a statue of a giant pear commemorating the prior existence of a pear orchard where a KFC now stands. In fact, there's not a monument anywhere in this city that reflects the story of busing. This history is not ancient history. It's both recent and deeply relevant, but too many people don't know it or know it, but don't acknowledge how it continues to impact our city. Our panel today gives us all an opportunity to grapple with this history once more. Bishop Borders, I'd be grateful if you'd start us off by introducing yourself and telling us how you enter this conversation. Well, hello everyone to all of you. I am John Matthew Borders III. There is actually a John Matthew Borders IV, my son, and a John Matthew Borders V, his son. I am 63 years old and I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, but I've been here since 1959. I have been the senior pastor of the Morning Star Baptist Church since June of 1981. I sat on the City of Boston Youth Council, high school and pre-high school youth council in 1971, which was just the beginning of forced busing. And I was also instrumental in the integration of the South Boston housing projects in the 80s. I believe in racial reconciliation, and that will be my mantra as long as I live. Thank you. Dr. Crockett, you want to go next? Oh, thanks, Nima. It's so great to be here. That is a, a very hard act to follow Bishop Borders as a legend in his own time before and after. So it's really an honor to follow him and be on this incredible, incredible panel. So I'm Carolyn Crockett, born and raised Boston girl, born in Dorchester. I am also a professor at MIT in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning, where I'm a professor of history, public policy, and planning. I also was appointed by Mayor Walsh last year as the city's first chief of equity. But today I really come as a resident, as a lover of history, and as someone who has been very committed in my career of more than 20 years of really trying to understand how we as a city can get it right for all the folks that live here, particularly young people, as an educational beacon in the world, as a healthcare beacon, as a cultural beacon that shines out. How can that light be as bright and as powerful for young people who are growing up in the city today and right now? Um, Boston as a city that is majority people of color, 54% people of color. Um, there's an incredible awakening and reconciliation, Bishop Borders agreed, that needs to continue on to make sure the city lives up to its fulfillment and its promise for its residents and particularly for young people. My grandmother was one of the 57 plaintiffs, along with Tula Morgan, who sued the Boston School Committee um, and that led to this auspicious conversation and work. So I'm really proud to be here as a descendant of one of the original freedom fighters, really committed to making sure that Boston schools really live up to what the Constitution demands. I've got goosebumps already, and we haven't even fully started this panel. Professor Delmont, go ahead. Thanks, Nima. It's a pleasure to have a chance to be in conversation with all of you, and thanks for inviting me. I'm a professor of history at Dartmouth College. I'm interested in African-American history and history of civil rights. And a few years ago, I wrote a book called Why Busing Failed. Uh, that's about a book about the history of busing for school desegregation um, in New York City, Pontiac, Chicago, and then Boston, of course. My particular interest in regards to busing for school desegregation is how media covered the issue 
nationally, and particularly the two decades that preceded Boston's so-called busing crisis. So a lot of these debates came out of the late 1950s, almost immediately after Brown versus Board. In the Boston instance, or in the Boston instance, I'm particularly interested in the role of Black civil rights activists, uh, folks like Ruth Batson and Ellen Jackson, who too often are left out of the story. Awesome. Thank you. So I think if it's okay with folks, we're just going to go ahead and get started with the question about Mayor Kevin White. We want to think about it in terms of your reflections on what role you saw him playing in this moment in history. And Vision Borders, you have the interesting perspective of thinking about as a young person, like how did you perceive him versus how you perceive him now. But for all of you, when you think about this history, how do you understand Mayor White's role in it? And how do you think his identity and his motivations kind of shaped what happened with desegregation in the city of Boston? May I begin by telling a a quick story that I think it was a year or two before he died, I was actually invited to a one-on-one lunch with Kevin White, being the pastor of Morningstar Baptist Church. And he had still a great deal of influence on the development of the Morton Street housing development right there where the Boston State Hospital is or was. And what stood out about that meeting, we're both old, old in the tooth now. He was for me the first of the power broker mayors. He was a boss and he knew he was a boss. So he knew that his decisions carried a lot of weight. I don't remember him as much as a child. I remember more Louise Day Hicks as a child and her influence over fighting against busing. But as a big time mayoral boss, what Kevin White said and did mattered. If people crossed him, they became his enemies and they felt the wrath of his anger. And if they were supporters, basically they carried out his will and opinion. So no one can tell me that forced busing could not have been more effective if Kevin White got behind it. I think just to add a little bit of maybe context to Kevin White, if I may, might be helpful. When the busing decision came down, I was one years old. So I cannot speak from direct experience or my own memory. But as a historian who really thinks about the city's political history, I can tell you that Kevin White's rise to power is significant because when he's elected mayor, as Bishop Borders had just mentioned, he was running against Louise Day Hicks, who was a very vocal and outspoken critic of integration but also any kind of recognition of the civil rights movement, of the Black power movement. There was really no recognition that there was an issue of racial segregation in the city of Boston. And so what's significant about this is, as we all know, Kevin White becomes mayor, defeats Louise Day Hicks, but there was a serious base that she had. I think Mayor White wins by 12,000 votes. But in the preliminary election uh, that year, it was Louise Day Hicks who came out on top. And so what that tells us is that this is a very powerful moment uh, politically in terms of understanding the pulse of the city. And the city was very fractured and very divided. And when we think of Kevin White, I think what was missing in this 1971, 1972, 1973 moment was this very vocal opposition or very even not even opposition, recognition that racial segregation was an issue in the city of Boston. If the mayor had come out and said that, if the political establishment, the business establishment had come out and said that, I think it would have set a quite a different tone in the city. And so that cannot be underscored and underestimated in terms of the political power and the weight of the moral authority of the mayor and the city of Boston based on how the charter is written. And so when we look to Kevin White, we can certainly critique him as a personality, critique him as a particular elected official official, and we could be justified in doing that. But I also just want to bring attention to the larger political structure that was operating essentially in a vacuum in this moment, and in the vacuum in in the sense of really articulating a bold commitment to progressive policies. And certainly racial integration was the law of the land. And there was quite a lot of activity on the ground to support that both in the North and the South. And so there was very 
much a missed opportunity. And, and City Hall allowed for a very devastating and violent political leadership in vacuum to really emerge that allowed Louise Day Hicks, allowed opponents of Roar, Restore Her Alienated Rights, and other organizations to really take hold. So when I think about the fact that on the first day of school in that fall, I, I read this recount of, of Kevin White talking about the fact that he wakes up on the day of the first day of school. Um, and instead of going to City Hall, his driver wasn't there. He didn't have a whole calendar of events. And he gets in his own car and drives himself to the Arnold Arboretum and basically takes a walk because he said he didn't know what to expect on this day. And so at, on the exact same day that my aunt and my aunties are in school buses dealing with rocks and epithets being thrown at them and being really fearful, as was my grandmother and my mom, the mayor of the city of Boston is in the Arnold Arboretum taking a walk for two hours. And he talks about the fact that he's sitting in his car and he opens the door and two young boys walk up to him. And he looks at them and he says, why aren't you in school? And the young boy said to him, well, our mom told us not to go to school because there would be trouble today. And so he shares this story publicly and it very much gives us a telescope into the mind of the mayor and the status of the city. And again, our political apparatus on this very historic day of violence, of pain and political turmoil. And so uh, the mayor is struggling um, and the city struggles even more so as a result. Professor Delmont, when you think about Mayor White, does he sort of mimic or resemble what was happening with leadership in other cities? How do you see uh, Boston relative to other cities in your work? Yeah, so for Mayor White, I think of him as kind of a classic white liberal politician of these northern cities. And in 1975, he said, I'm for integration and against forced busing. He said 80% of the people in Boston are against busing. If Boston were a sovereign state, busing would be a cause for revolution. And that first piece, that I'm for integration and against forced busing, really struck me because that's exactly the same thing that Joe Biden said regarding Delaware when he was a congressman there in the 1970s. And that was a turn of phrase that white politicians in the North loved to use because they thought it put them on the right side, that you know, we're on the side of integration. Right. So they're supporting their black constituents. But by saying they're against forced busing, they're trying to signal to their white constituents that they weren't actually going to do anything to actually force implementation of this. So I think by, by saying that, he, he signaled where a lot of his commitments lay. Zooming out from just Boston, it's that kind of sentiment that led to Boston's intransigence regarding school desegregation in the first place. That the reason it was so hard for cities like Boston, New York, Chicago to integrate is that you had politicians that were unwilling to do almost anything regarding school zoning, regarding student transfers, regarding these busing programs um, before they reached court orders and before really the situation became so dire that you end up with situations like the Boston busing crisis. So I think to pick up on what Dr. Crockett and Bishop Border said, I think um, it could have been worse in Boston. I think had Louise Hicks been elected mayor, um, I think the Boston busing crisis would have been uh, even more profound. Um, I think to Bishop Order's point, uh, Mayor White certainly could have done more. I mean, he was not in charge of school zoning. That's the Boston School Committee, right? He doesn't have some of the role that the city council does. But if Mayor White steps out and says, this is important for the city, that we have a civic obligation to do this, the story would have gone differently. When you look at cities, particularly Southern cities like um, Louisville, that were more successful in those years immediately after Boston, they were successful in part because their mayors did their jobs as leaders. They said, we, we know you aren't happy about this, but we have to do it. We have to comply. This isn't an optional court order. And so I think Mayor White is a, a good kind of um, uh, microcosm of why there is so, such deeply entrenched resistance in New York and in, in, in the North among, among politicians. May, may I add a story also that I'm not sure of the full context of the story from a political point of view, but I think it is germane to this conversation. I was a part, as I mentioned before, of the uh, Citywide Youth Council. Citywide Youth Council, just before 1972, was morphed into an idea, and I believe it was funded by the city, where 300 youth who were going into high school were paid by the city of Boston to spend the summer at English High School, which was across the street at that time from um, Boston Latin School. We were there for the summer, paid by the city, $16 an hour. So there was good money to be a teenager at that time. And we were to work on the path to 
racial reconciliation and understanding, sort of like a um, prototype of what should happen when the different races came together. So there were people from Jamaica Plain, there were people from Hyde Park, there were people from Roxbury and Dorchester and various sections of Boston who spent three months together. We were basically a checkerboard. So even though we were representing various neighborhoods, we were very specifically different ethnic groups at the same time. When we came together in the beginning of the summer, in June, we didn't talk, we didn't get along, we were all in our separate camps. And as time went on, the advisors and the teachers and this was all an experiment leading up to forced busing. Over time, there were counselors and leaders who worked to get us to talk and dialogue about how we felt about forced busing and how we felt about integration. And I remember by the middle of the summer, we were actually playing together. We were playing ball, football, baseball, basketball chasing girls and whatever, doing those things together. And then the last two weeks of that program, leading up to September, everyone went back to their separate corners. The animosity built and every day there was a fight after the program, which led to the kind of chaos and fighting that we saw during the days, the early days of forced busing. I'll never forget it. So it was an experiment. We were called together, but the circumstances divided us again by the end of the summer. Thanks for sharing that. Professor Delmet, you brought up the, uh, the school committee and the city council as two other bodies in the city that had roles to play um, when it came to desegregation, both in terms of making policy and in terms of moral authority and establishing whether this is something we should be doing as a city or not. I'm curious what you all think about how those bodies influenced what happened in the city and also how you think the lack of representation of the Black community in both of those bodies impacted what happened with desegregation in the city. It's a great question, particularly as it pertains to the, the school committee. At this time, we're talking about an elected body. The school committee now in 2021, and for a while now, since the 80s, I believe, has been um, an appointed body. And so for a long time, if you were someone who was seeking elected office, a citywide elected office or higher, the school committee was seen as the way to kind of move forward. And so it was seen as a stepping stone. And so th that's, a, that's an important distinction here because people will comment and say that often folks who saw themselves on the Boston School Committee during these years were not necessarily people who were committed to education issues or who were particularly well-versed there, but saw that kind of platform, again, as a way to, to think about even the mayor's seat or the, some kind of state-level seat or uh, even, even, even a national role. And so I mentioned that because it, it does make you wonder how uh, the school committee members themselves are really thinking about this issue of educational and racial integration in, in a very thoughtful and purposeful way. And so the fact that it took the, the force of law uh, to force their hand um, and actually to be sued by moms and students uh, to get uh, an articulation of what students needed um, gives us some sense of the, the, the political hijinks that were necessary uh, to even make this conversation possible. So again, um, the school committee as an elected body really was seen as something often that was very transactional space for folks who had greater and higher political ambitions. And that was certainly true for Louise Day Hicks and certainly true for uh, residents across the city who were looking for leadership. And so it's interesting how you have the school committee in this lockstep battle with the mayor um, when in fact there were the voices of the wider body, the fact that there's so many of the schools were not only overwhelmingly Black, I think the numbers are 13 schools that had 90% or more Black enrollment. The issue is what is the quality of schools 
across the entire city. This is something that we never get that point being raised by the school committee during this time. It's also is a point that goes missing um, even from the mayor's office. The fact that even if we want to talk about white students in South Boston or white students in Charlestown, uh, the quality of education that those students were receiving was for a subpar. And so there needed to be a much bigger conversation about the level of education for K through 12 in the city. And we never seem to get there because of this very toxic conversation about local rights um, and what that meant for people to be able to be self-determining and, and a conversation about local control, which devolved into pitting essentially working class and wealth-deprived families against each other when the conversation needed to be elevated. And we did not see that our political leaders doing that. In fact, it's the voice of parents, many Black parents, the NAACP, certainly Ellen Jackson, and others who are really trying to elevate the conversation and is the discussion that we're still in quite frankly, as we try to understand what is the North Star for for setting a table around educational excellence in the city. And so it seems like that's a part of this conversation that continues to get lost because of a, a romance that we may have about what racial integration looks like or needs to be. We still are not having a conversation about what that means in terms of educational attainment and opportunity for students who desperately need it in one of the educational capitals of the world. When I think about the school segregation issue in, in Boston, I think three questions kept coming up. One was, do we have segregation? The second was, is that segregation intentional? And then the third is, if it is intentional, do we have to do anything about it? I think if there's a villain in the Boston busing story, it's the Boston School Committee, because they do everything they can in those early years in the 1950s and 60s to deny the fact that segregation even exists. Right? That's one of the first challenges that, that civil rights activists and Black parents even face is proving that there's segregation in the city, right? Finally, they get through that barrier in the early 1960s. Then the question is, well, the school committee says, well, there might be segregation, but we didn't do it, right? It just so happens, right? That this is market forces or it's just the preferences of, of white parents and, and Black parents. So then that next barrier they have to overcome through the lawsuit is proving that it's intentional. Uh, and in fact, that's what Judge Garrity's order shows. I think this is what a lot of people forget is they, they focus on the anger and the buses and the rocks, but Judge Garrity order finds that the Boston School Committee intentionally segregated Boston schools right, by creating these junior highs where black students would go for three years and white students would go for two years. So they'd be in separate feeder systems by using busing, right? So busing is used for a number of years to maintain a segregated school system with no complaints from white parents until it's linked to segregation. Um, and then that third question of, do we have to do anything about it? So the school committee never steps up and says that this is something that is important for us to address. And I think when you think about its relationship to the mayor, I think as uh, Dr. Crockett pointed to, the kind of political hijinks that would happen with something like the school committee as it was constructed right there, there was very little accountability, right? If these folks are running, they're trying to essentially serve a set of constituents who might not have the, the best interest of the entire city of Boston at, at heart. They certainly don't have the best interest of Black Bostonians at heart, but there's no one there to actually hold them accountable. And that's what the civil rights activists are fighting for for a number of years. Um, but I think it is important in sort of thinking about Mayor White is I think we can hold him accountable or be critical for the, what he didn't do in terms of stepping up and taking on a larger, more vocal role. But at the end, they recognize that he was one of a number of different players who I think dropped the ball in terms of having a, a more um, vocal, forward-looking civic response. You know, I, I cannot speak about this from a political point of view at that time because I lived it. But as I listen to the things that are being said by my other speakers, I, I want to, I'm very emotional about it now. I, I'm fighting back the tears and I'm fighting back the anger because I remember I was shipped from or, or bused from Dorchester to West Roxbury High School for my first class. And then I went from there to Roxbury High School, which was the feeder program for south boston high and at both times i remember we had to duck down and protect the girls and things like that as the rocks were flying in our windows but what really stood out in my mind was that i had never seen a lab a laboratory microscope until i went to west roxbury high school all the books that i ever saw in school in dorchester and roxbury were five to ten years old 
the hallways were dirty and the food was subpar. But when we went to these other programs, you could tell that the neighborhoods themselves had protected the interests of their children by supporting the schools on an entirely different level. And although I don't remember much about Mayor White at that time, I do remember my hero was Judge Garrity. Because Judge Garrity was the judge who enforced desegregation of the schools. He was the one that made the decision about forced busing. And although it was very, very difficult for all the communities to experience, we felt somehow that he was a part of the consciousness of the movement led by Martin Luther King Jr. and others, you know, the Boston branch of the NAACP, who were trying to bring about a change in society, to bring equity and balance to society at that time. So I knew more about Judge Garrity than I knew about anyone else at that time. It's really powerful to think about that the people who were supposed to represent and lead in the city were not visible in a way, and that it required a judge and it required that kind of intervention to feel seen. So Dr. Crockett, you referred to that statistic of uh, the percentage of schools in the early 70s that were more than 90% students of color. Um, The Globe in 2018 did a count. And at that time, 60% of the schools in Boston still had student bodies that were more than 90% students of color. That is less than it was in the early 70s, but it's actually more segregated now than it was about 20 years ago because of changes in how the city uh, assigns students to schools. We're on the cusp of a mayoral election. When you think about the state of segregation in Boston now, things are a little bit different than they were. Um, The population of white students in the Boston public schools is around 15% at this point. That's significantly different than it was previously. There's been white flight both to private schools and to the suburbs. And so the work of the mayor around the issue of segregation or desegregation has to look different than it did in the past. Um, And I guess I wonder, what role do you see the mayor playing in addressing the issue of segregation? And, And if you were to put on your mayor hat, like, what do you think are the moves that make sense in this moment? What it means to integrate schools is something very different than I think it was during busing. It's a tremendous question. It sounds like you're asking a little bit about what's different now and what the opportunity for the mayor, even the the mayor we're about to elect, was the opportunity for the mayor to drive change here in terms of educational outcomes and certainly in terms of racial integration. I would say absolutely, Nima, that we're in a very different historical and political moment, one where we are seeing many of our elected officials and political leaders, including Mayor Janey, including previously Mayor Walsh, uh, call out um, structural racism as a problem and as a crisis, as a public health crisis. Professor Delmott's point is very well taken about the absolutely painful, impossibleness of getting the political apparatus in the 1950s and 60s to recognize that there's a problem here in the city of Boston. So all of the movement on the streets and just the anxiety and the trauma in the aftermath of George Floyd, it has definitely ratcheted up our public conversation, our public recognition of what is the problem. And the problem of structural racism is one that we can just talk about, it seems like, without blinking an eye. Now, what the solutions look like and what it means to actually drive change there is another story, but there is a shift here in terms of public recognition, and particularly in the city of Boston, where you have the mayor, where you have the city council, where you have civic leaders speaking very clearly about uh, what, what the issue is. That Again, that was not true 50 years ago, and not even close. Um, the other thing that you, you rightfully point out is this point about demographic changes. And so we are still a region that is undergoing quite a bit of, of demographic change. And it is in the 1950s where the city of Boston really starts to lose population. And so the point that you make about um, the white flight, about how we're looking at a changing demographic in the, in the city in the 50s and 60s continues, uh, and also a diversification of the population is an important point because that's what we're seeing in the schools. 
So the point here for me is one, what is that moral compass that the mayor's office, that the mayor, that the city council, that the school committee is leading us on? What does that mean for the quality of education? Bishop Border speaks with passion about the incredible education disparity that he lived. And that's sobering because in 2021, uh, we'd like to feel that there was educational equity in terms of what's being offered across all of our schools in the city. The 57,000 young people that are in Boston Public Schools um, are, are deserving of a quality education. And I think there was just a Globe piece a couple of days ago saying how it's notable that this is not a central issue in this year's mayoral election. And so we still have a very uh, considerable problem in terms of educational excellence, in terms of outcomes. Our Superintendent Casillas continues to be an incredible leader here, uh, but we need many people who are really rallied behind her and alongside her to make sure that young people in the city again are getting quality education. I mean, I remember before my grandmother passed talking to her quite a bit about what it meant to be a part of this historic suit with Tula Mortgage. And, and she was very clear that it was really, again, about quality education. And I know from her firsthand that the education that she received as a young woman, as a young Black girl, even in Excelsior, West Virginia, which is where my family came from, um, and a segregated school system, was a superior education than the one I received in middle school. I'm sorry to say that. I I know I have my McCormick middle school teacher on the mic here, but um, it took a lot of years for me to come through school to actually be able to be um, in conversation with my grandmother, because even though she, again, she came from a segregated school system, the level and the quality of teaching um, and lessons and information that she received was just an enormous. And so we don't really talk about that part of the story, about how there were so many parents who had come from other parts of the, of the country, um, Southern migrants who knew firsthand what educational excellence looked like. And here they were in the industrial North or post industrial North receiving education that they knew was much below the level of what their, their children deserved. And so um, I think there's something to be said about, again, that kind of vision, that kind of commitment, and the fact that it still sets a bar that we are, are not quite reaching right now. If, if I may, and I didn't want to uh, take up the entire conversation, but I do remember this over the years since I became a pastor that whenever the mayor of the city of Boston supports the superintendent of schools, then innovation takes place and the agenda is forwarded. Whenever the mayor of the city of Boston does not support the superintendent of schools, politics takes over and personal agendas take over. So in terms of what the mayor can do, the mayor can be very outspoken and supporting the school superintendent because over the last 20 or 30 years, it seems as though every school superintendent has been a sacrificial lamb here in Boston, and we haven't moved the dial that much in terms of educational equity. I'd like to also see a lot more money put into the school system. It seems as though a lot of people fight for their own individual budgets in these various subsections of Boston and the money is not distributed fairly enough where it's needed, whether that has to do with the politics of voting and census data and all those things, I'm not sure, but I'd love to see a more equitable exchange for you know, this large multi-million dollar budget that the city of Boston has for education. It's a great point, Bishop Borders, and you, you know, right alongside there on the demographic point, again, the city is growing, right? We just saw um, some of this early census information that's showing us that the city is growing in population, but also becoming even more diverse and younger. And so, again, it really underscores the importance of being able to have good quality schools, good quality opportunities, and a framework and a political apparatus that support that. Exactly right. So, um, that this is very much important for not only looking back at the past and not just some imaginary future, 
right? But with the future that we're in right now. And so I appreciate this conversation because it's really lifting up so many of the issues, which um, again, are still not even emerging uh, necessarily in the political conversation leading up to this year's municipal election. So I appreciate the tone of, of the conversation very much. Professor Delmont, you wanna give us some last thoughts? Sure, just building on uh, the good points that Dr. Crockett and Bishop Borders made. Um, I think for a new mayor, I think reckoning honestly with this history of busing in Boston, I think I'm not a Bostonian, but everything I know is that this is, remains an open wound uh, in Boston. I think having someone who can, in a leadership position, sort of talk honestly about this. But then I think trying to use that history to sort of pivot towards the future. I think we're still in many ways stuck in an old way of thinking about integration that it can get too hung up on demographics, right? This percentage of students at this school, this percentage of that school. I think talking about integration in a way that my colleagues on this panel have said that it's about the, the resources that are going in different schools. It's about the kind of educational opportunities that are going to different schools, the kind of experiences students are having, whether they're seeing teachers who look like them and are from uh, different racial and ethnic groups and making sure that quality education is available across the entire city. So I think a mayor is in a unique position to actually get citizens to think about the city as a city. Um, and then the last point I would make is I think there might be potential to think creatively about how the city can work cooperatively with metropolitan areas that surround it and sort of the suburbs because the demographics of the suburbs are changing as well. I mean, we all know about the METCO program, which has existed for decades now, transporting students from the city in Boston out to suburban schools that have open seats. That program has been about the same size since the 1970s. They had about 3,000 students in the early 1970s. They have about 3,000 students today. Whenever it's possible for a new mayor to sort of think about how can you use that as one way to get the whole metropolitan region of Boston to think about the sort of shared educational futures for the people in that region. May I add one last point? I'd like to end my comments on a more positive note. I was on the buses. I felt the the bricks and the rocks. I, I've been called, even by some of the people that I spent that summer with at English High School, the N-word. I know what that feels like. I know the entire experience. But one thing positive came out of forced busing at that time. Prior to that, our parents would either wait for us at the bus and send us off to school and see us at the end of the day. But during forced busing, our parents had to stay with us. They had to monitor the entire process. They had to see us safely to school. They had to find out what was going on during class time. They had to make sure we arrived home safely after school. So forced busing did bring about a lot more parental involvement in the Black community. Thank you for that. Any final thoughts that either of you would like to share? I would say, you know, there's a line in the sand, even in how people talk about this period. And thinking about Bishop Border's comments there, and even the term forced busing, what that makes us think about um, in terms of what we're talking about versus school desegregation. And there are definitely kind of two camps in terms of who calls this period what. But I think the thing to keep in mind there is that, again, the goal, the kind of what was the, the outcome that we were driving here and how is it that you can have language and can have a vision that makes people feel like they're a part of the city and can, again, tap so many of the city's resources. We're an incredibly well-resourced city that suffers from having so much of those resources just not be shared equally. I mean, that's an understatement. And also just a, not a shared political vision of what power really looks like. And that's something that this period gives to us. When we think about the 1960s and even the 70s, there was such a fire on the ground and such a fiery vision for what could be possible and calling that into service, whether it was through the courts or whether it was on the ground. And so it just feels still important that there's a way to, to really hold on to the fire of what this period was offering us. And it's not just something that should just be, I don't know, given out to a, a consultant or, or kind of wait. Uh, we're waiting for some answer to arrive that we have folks um, who've lived through this history like Bishop Borders and others who can tell us that it is important for children to feel protected and loved by their families and by their communities. And I do feel like that there is a generation or two that we have let down in that regard and that the city uh, has a responsibility to past generations, but also for trying to think about the vitality going forward of this expanding population in terms of what is our educational path. 
um, what is that opportunity path that we really want to call into action. And a lot of the controversy about this period was the method as much as anything. So again, forced busing are the ideas that full buses were being told to go here and there. Um, we can argue all day about what that method was that we got right or got wrong and who felt safe and who felt politically exposed, but we still have not addressed, again, the outcome. And so I hope that even as we debate whether or not the method was right or not, we, we can hold in mutuality the fact that not only is the work undone, but that there have been people who have been on the ground working and who've made the real gains in this area. So as Professor Delmont had pointed out, folks at METCO, like uh, Millie Arbahi Thomas, I think of her and others who are really at the front line of this work and deserve to have their voices amplified because there are solutions and we can scale them and we don't have to wait um, and just wring our hands waiting for, for some kind of miracle thing to occur. We have folks who have the lived experience and the know-how to really lead the mayor and lead the city right now. My final thought is I'm really excited that this play is, is happening because the stories that we tell about the past matter. Um, and I think the story about school desegregation in Boston has been mistold for decades, that it's a story that fundamentally is about the constitutional rights of Black students um, and the kind of educational opportunities that was available to them. But it's been told and retold by focusing on the anger and perspectives of, of white protesters. Um, and I think anything we can do to, to change that narrative puts us in a better spot to think about educational futures. Thank you for sharing those comments because they've actually helped to alleviate some of the past emotions that I've had from this experience. And to know that we are working to move forward, it seems as though we've made some reversals, but I think those reversals are only felt by some because we're more aware of the consequences of desegregation or, or racism and the racist policies of a city like Boston and we are also conscious that if we all work together and work hard and have courage, then lives will be changed and we'll change the outcome of our, our cities. And it won't be so much about rhetoric, but it'll really be about uh, uh, developing a new culture, a new way of life. And Bishop Borders, thank you so much for your witness for caring so much of this, for your ministry, which is just so powerful, and just for being here, because it, without your story and your voice, we could just be just kind of rooting around in the dark here in abstraction. So thank you for keeping us grounded. Um, and I just wanted to say that just from my own heart, because it just matters so much. And the fact that you feel some of your own burden lifted or yeah. held with others, that is powerful. So thank you so much. And Kirsten, thank you for your work and your commitment to seeing this through because um, we are a city deeply in need of healing and revival. That is still true, even though we don't speak in those, those terms. And so I, I just thank you and I thank everyone for, for the chance to be here. Thank you all so much for your time and for your thinking. It's been an honor to be in this space with you. I'm so appreciative of all of you. Thank you for listening to Common Ground in Perspective. This conversation was moderated by Nima Avashia with panelists Bishop John Borders III, Dr. Carolyn Crockett, and Professor Matthew Delmont. The short play is written by Kirsten Greenwich, directed by Melia Bensusen, and is performed by Matthew Brettschneider, Michael Kay, Omar Robinson, and Brenda Withers. The sound design and music was created by Owen Meadows with sound engineering by Matthew Frigi. This podcast was line produced by Rosalind Bevan and dramaturged by Charles Hoagland. The audio of President Ford was provided by the Gerald R. Ford Presidential Library. To hear more audio plays and podcasts and to learn more about future productions at the theater, visit HuntingtonTheater.org. The Huntington encourages you to support your local theater to support the Huntington, please go to our website. Thanks for listening.